start into our sermon, I just want to say a big thank you to everybody for your support through, yes, particularly yesterday and just over the last few years while I've been training um, for licensed lay ministry. It's um, something the bishop said to us yesterday was about this is this isn't the end. This is a sort of start, it's the end of our sort of official training, if you like. This is a start of a new ministry. And I think I'm excited to see all that God's got in store for what I'm going to do here and, and just through my work and, and just in ministry and where, where he's going to lead Esther and the girls and I in the future. One of the privileges I have in my day job is uh, my day job involves helping church leaders think about their, their development, how they're equipping themselves and where, they're, where their future vocation is taking them. And one of the privileges I have with that is travelling around the country, talking to all sorts of different church leaders. And one of the things I've been asking them recently is, if you could choose any passage of the Bible to preach on, what would it be? Just trying to find out what's, what's making their hearts sing, what are their passions. And I've had all sorts of different responses. I think the most single common Bible passage is John 10.10, people say, it's where Jesus says, I have come life, I have come so that you may have life and have it to the full. I've had a few people choose some Psalms. I've had a few people who are the, the proper Anglicans who say, I don't have a favourite Bible passage, my favourite passage is to preach on the lectionary for the day. And then, when I was talking to Martin about the licensing service yesterday, and we thought it might be a good idea for me to preach this morning, and then the rotor came out, and it had those words that preachers either love or dread. In the Bible passage column, it had preacher's choice. I thought, hmm, okay, what do I choose? Today, in the, in the church, the church's calendar, in the season of the church, we're thinking about the Trinity. It's Trinity Sunday coming the week after Pentecost, where we remember and we think about what it means for God to be Trinity, God three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons but one God. And I thought, great, I can choose my passage, I can avoid preaching on the Trinity because it is such a complex topic and difficult to understand. And as I was thinking and praying about what I might want to share, something I've been really thinking about that lately, um, really following on from some seminars I went to at New Wine last year, is about what does it mean to be in community? What does it mean to be in relationship? And as I was thinking about it, it's like, actually, you can't really talk about community and about relationship without thinking about the Trinity. And so here we are on Trinity Sunday and we are going to talk a bit about the Trinity. But Trinity Sunday also goes by another name, which is Heresy Sunday. Heresy is sort of where we teach things that might not necessarily be completely accurate, completely fitting with the Bible. And so on Trinity Sunday, or Heresy Sunday, I might well end up saying some things that might not be quite right because it's such a complex topic. So with that in mind, let's just pray as we begin. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together, to meet together, to hear your word, to get to grips with it, to grapple with your word, and for you to speak to us. And I pray this morning that through the words that I speak, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will make clear to us your message for us this morning, and that it be you, Lord, that we hear speaking to us. Amen. So what is the Trinity? The Trinity is the Christian idea that God is three in one and one in three. So when we refer to God as Father, 
or as Son, or as Holy Spirit, we refer to three different persons, but yet also one, which is God. And this idea of the Trinity, that we, as the Church understands it and has understood it through the centuries, it's not something that is explicitly explained in the Bible. There's not part of the Bible that says this is the Trinity and this is how, what it means. The concepts are there, the imagery is there, but it's not, it wasn't until the early Church, in about the 4th century, that the Church agreed that this is the, our understanding of what the Trinity means. And it's best summed up in what's known as the Athanasian Creed, which is a very long uh, statement of belief. But part of it says that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance, but the Godhead of the Father, of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Beautiful phrases, long words. What does it actually mean? Each person of the Trinity coexists. They exist together at the same time. They're not different gods, but are one God. So the persons then coexist, and they cannot exist without the other. And none of them are created or made. Who's confused already? I was reminded of the passage in Romans where Paul talks about who can know the mind of our creator. And that's a phrase that's made it into a, into a worship song, hasn't it, that we sing quite a bit. Who can know the mind of our creator? And as I hinted at earlier, the problem that with the, the moment you start to try and explain the Trinity, we get into all sorts of difficulties. Because it is such a big concept, we just can't, Comprehend. We can't understand the idea of three different things actually being one. And we can use all sorts of different analogies, all sorts of different explanations to try and make our small minds understand something that is so huge that actually only God can understand it. But when we try to apply these analogies, they just don't quite all fit. They're just all lacking in some way. So some of these examples, um, some of these explanations, these analogies, a popular one is like you can take water, and water can exist as a liquid, as a solid when it's frozen, or as a vapour, as steam. So three, one thing, water, in three different forms. But we'd say that is a heresy, that is a false teaching called modalism. Modalism would suggest that God reveals himself in three different forms, appearing in different ways to different people. So that would suggest that today we might see a glimpse of God the Father, tomorrow we might see God the Son, the day after we might see God the Holy Spirit. So that doesn't quite explain the mystery of the Trinity, where God reveals himself as Father, Son and Holy Spirit at the same time. That coexisting. So that analogy doesn't really fit. St. Patrick was, is well known for using the analogy of the three-leaf clover, the shamrock, saying it's one, one leaf, but it's got three parts to it. But that would be partialism. Partialism implies that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but just different parts of God, each being one-third of the divine. So that doesn't really fit either. And then another favourite is if you imagine the sun, the sun is a star in the sky and it gives out light and it gives out heat. 
But that suggests that one creates the other two. And we believe that God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are not created, they're not made. So if we imagine the Son and say, well the Son is like God the Father and gives out the light and gives out the heat, that's suggesting that we're saying that the Son and the Holy Spirit are created, which again is wrong and that's the heresy known as Arianism. So is there actually a way that we can try and easily understand the concept of the Trinity? Now, depending on which Bible translation you're looking at, the passage that we had from, from 1 John earlier, the word love occurs in that passage about 27 times in, the, in just the 15 verses. So I think we can quite safely, it's quite safe to say what John is wanting to get across to us, what his theme is in that part of his letter. And of course, John also in his gospel, earlier in the New Testament, John writes the famous phrase, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So what has love, what has that passage got to do with our understanding of the Trinity? How do we apply that to how we understand God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to a Greek wedding. A Greek wedding, there's a very distinctive type of dance. I'm afraid this is another long word, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's, the, the, the dance is called perichoresis. And what that means in a perichoresis, in that dance at a Greek wedding, there are not two dancers, but there are at least three. And they start to go round in circles, weaving in and out of each other going faster and faster and creates a really beautiful pattern. And eventually the dancing becomes so fast, they're moving so quickly in perfect rhythm, in perfect synchronisation with each other, that you can't actually see the individual people. And as you look at them, it just becomes a blur. And their individual identities become part of a larger dance. And so that is one way that the early church said that, actually that's what the Trinity is like. The Trinity is a harmonious set of relationships in which there is mutual giving and there is mutual receiving. And this relationship is called love. And that's what the Trinity is all about. The perichoresis is the dance of love. And as we heard in our Bible passage, God is love. Now there's another part of the Bible, another part of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he writes this well-known passage about what love is and he says that love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And so drawing that into our understanding of what the Trinity is about, what it means to have the Father, Son and Holy Spirit in this enduring, loving relationship, the author Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, each of the divine persons centres upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, love, delight and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to and rejoices in the others. And that creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy 
and love. So if hopefully that's explained a little bit and given you a little flavour of what the Trinity is about. But so what? How do we apply that to our lives today? And I said earlier, one of the things that I've been thinking about is this idea of community, this idea of belonging. What does it mean for us to, be, to as belong to each other as a part of a church community, as part of a family? What does it mean for us to belong to Christ? And of course, do we model that love, that, that idea of perfect love in our relationships with each other? Now, on one hand, of course, we can't because we are not God. In Genesis, it says that we are made in the image of God. The creation account, the creation story says that we are made in the image of God. Male and female, God created them in the image of God. So we are made in the image of God the Father, in the image of God the Son, in the image of God the Holy Spirit. We're made of God. So our characteristics, our personality traits, reflect something of the nature of God. And of course, we're relational beings, aren't we? Probably apart from any other species on the planet, we have the ability to form friendships, to form intimate relationships where we can show love and affection. We have the emotional and mental capacity. Thinking back to that Tim Keller quote, we have the emotional and mental capacity to pour love, pour delight and adoration into other people because we are made in God's image. So we reflect that ability to have community, to have relationship with each other. And community is an important part of how we express our faith. Paul describes the church as a body where we each have a function to play. We need each other. That part where Paul's talking about the body of Christ, he says the, the hand can say to the foot, I don't need you. you know, we're, we're all important, we all have our own role to play in the community. And love cannot exist in isolation. True love, by definition, means there has to be more than one person involved. So as we're thinking about community, particularly on a Sunday where we're celebrating baptism, and Jessica is starting her journey as part of the community of faith. Baptism is symbolic of her joining the worldwide church, acknowledging that she is made in the image of God. And when Martin baptises her, she'll be baptised in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I'm throwing loads of quotes at you today. Um, C.S. Lewis said that we were made not primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us. God is love. God loves us. So God loves us with a love that is patient with a love that is kind, not with a love that is irritable or resentful. God's love for us never ends. And the love of God for us is an invitation. It's an invitation for us to enter into that relationship with him, to enter into that community with him, to enter into that dance, that perichoresis. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus inviting people into community, into relationship with him. He draws people into conversation. But he meets people where they are. Something I've been really thinking about at the moment is how we, 
have a need for relationships in four different spaces or different spheres. So we engage with people, we have relationships with people in a public setting, so in large gatherings like this. Then we have relationships with people in social settings, in slightly smaller groups, maybe at parties or in the office or in the classroom. Then we have those personal relationships with our close friends, a smaller number again. And then we have a much smaller number of intimate relationships where there is real depth of intimacy. And if we look in the Gospels, we can see that Jesus interacts with people in those different spheres. He teaches the crowds, so the public sphere. He spends time with his widest group of disciples, the social sphere. He has more intimate connections with Peter, James and John, so stories like the Transfiguration, when he, take, when he takes them into the room when he heals Jairus' daughter. And of course he has intimate connections one-on-one -on -one with people, where he encounters people where they are, so the woman at the well, for example. But something that's really fascinated me as I've been thinking about this is noticing that Jesus doesn't force people to interact with him in a way that they're not comfortable with. There's one passage in the, in the Gospels where Jesus heals a centurion's servant and the centurion comes to Jesus and says, my servant is ill, please will you heal him? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll come to your house. But the centurion doesn't want that level of relationship with Jesus. He's not ready for that sort of next stage of Jesus coming to his house. He says, no, I'm not worthy. You can't come to my house, but I know I've got the faith that you can heal. And Jesus does. He doesn't impose himself on the centurion, but he meets him where he's at and where he's ready to be met. Jesus ministers to us where we are, where we're ready for him to meet us. He invites us into relationship with him. And he demonstrates to us the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I just want to end with a verse from Ephesians, where Paul writes, I pray that you will grasp, and he goes on to say, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.